language are you speaking about specifically? Like if I were to tell my parents or somebody I used to go to church with that you're propagating white supremacy. Um, some of the conversations I've had with people that that just shuts them down from listening right away. Welcome to Evangel Bros, your weekly podcast about biblical literacy, discipleship, and historical slash cultural context. I'm your co-host, George Benson. I'm your other co-host, Don Sheever. And uh, we're back with Don this week, taking a little uh, check-in from, from his sabbatical. Yeah. George is looking good, so I'm going to accept that. And thank goodness you all can't see me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it, so, uh, so how you doing? Doing pretty well. It, you know, it's such a weird thing to, you know, when someone told me it would take me three weeks to kind of get in the sabbatical mode, I kind of was like, you know, maybe I think I'm an overachiever or something. I don't know, but I was like, no, three weeks, I'll be in sabbatical mode in the first afternoon. And I really, this is, this is the beginning of my uh, fourth week of sabbatical. And man, I just yesterday would say was the first day that I kind of really bought into the whole sabbatical mindset. Um, so it is kind of an interesting thing. You have to shed a lot of habits and expectations you put on yourself and everything to be productive in every moment instead of being uh, healing and, and being actually refreshed uh, it's such a such an interesting process, but I'm feeling good. Um, the weather's been beautiful. It's not been kind to my days for me. Fall and spring are pretty rough with the barometric shifts, but, but being able to go for walks and get outside and the sunshine has been wonderful. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so we're taking a break from our normal series. For, the, uh, for this week, because Don, you said you had something you want to talk about, and I don't even know what it is. So spring it on me, man. So a lot of this is stuff that we've sprinkled throughout many different episodes. And in some ways, I just want to kind of gather it into one episode and add some additional thoughts around it. Um, and part of it is selfishness, uh, because next week, uh, I'm helping with an anti-racist course for churches, and we're developing it. And next week, I'm, I'm doing my, this one of the sessions that I'm leading. And it's on white supremacy in the church. And so as I've been just thinking about that and preparing for that next week, um, it's just really got me thinking. We've touched on it many, many times over the last couple of years of doing Evangel Bros. And, um, but a lot of times it's kind of like off-handed comments about we do this in the church. And so I kind of wanted to see if we could bring them all together. One, it kind of helps me solidify some of my thoughts and everything about what I'm going to share next week. But also, just we have one episode that we can point people to and talk about how white supremacy still reigns and rules in the, in the way we do church. So that's what I want to talk about. What do you think, George? 
I think that that's a good idea, and I'm excited to see how this episode goes. <laughs> so, so when I use that, first of all, I think what's interesting is the immediate reaction. Now, depending on where some of our listeners are, not everyone that listens to our show is going to have, you know, uh, react negatively to calling it white supremacy, but. I think a lot of people struggle with that term, right? That uh, of participating in white supremacy, because whether we say white supremacy or we say racism, we often just reduce that to people in white hoods dancing around a burning cross in the middle of a forest. Oh yeah, or you know, I mean, we live in Lucas County, so there, the neo-Nazi marches that have happened over the last few years. Right, so in here, Toledo here, or in the county that Toledo sits in, um, there's been a couple times in the last few years that the neo-Nazis have come in. And, you know, in the first instance, the police actually protected the neo-Nazis and marched around them to protect them, and that caused a huge amount of controversy. Yeah. Um, so, George, when you hear white supremacy in the church or racism in the church, what, where, where does your mind tend to go, whether where you've seen it or, um, or even like how you think people react to that? Like if you just walked into an, a church on any given Sunday, terrible movie by the way, um, but you just walked into a church on any given Sunday and said, this church practices white supremacy and racism. Like what kind of reaction do you think you get? Okay, so you're asking me if I walked in and said, this church practices white supremacy and racism, what reaction I would get, or what what comes to mind when I think of those? Just run with it, spitball. Okay. Um, well, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is if there's a picture of white Jesus there. Um, mm. and, and then, you know, looking at the staff, um, who, who is on board, uh, what type of authors they read. Um, so if you look at their bookshelf, look at their stained glass windows, look at their staff. Yeah. Um, and then probably some of the language that they use, you know, is, does this church practice paternalism? Um, are we holding it? Does this church hold on to the idea of colonization with missions? Um, mm. You know, do they have a, a, a branch or a, a campus church that is in the inner city bringing the suburbs to it? Um, or as I like to call that, uh, uh, Christianification. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a couple of things that just kind of jumped to mind. You know, they're kind of broad strokes, but. So how do you think they would respond to that notion that those are signals or those are, uh, you know, guideposts to racism and uh, white supremacy? Well, I think that most people would be mortified and, and deny it because we 
you know, the, when you point out institutional racism, people take it very personally because they're a part of it. Um, right. I mean, I know when I started doing some of this work, that was my reaction <laughs> because in my mind, you know, I'm a air quote good person. And so because I don't participate in those, uh, glaring examples that we brought up at the when we started talking about this but you know growing up i was taught to lock my car doors when i go to downtown mm -hmm. so you know recognizing that um there is structural violence that i participate in and the church is a proponent of that and we don't realize it uh yeah. so defense i i mean you know people I would say if I said that to the church as a whole, it would become very defensive. Um, and uh, often I can think of a few cases where they point out to people of color that agree with their stance or their theology or that may attend. And they'll say, if we were truly like that, th those people wouldn't be here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, just off the top of my head, that kind of... Yeah, I think those are all really, really great and solid examples. Um, and I think that that's... I think a lot of those go very unnoticed. I think the one that probably is maybe a favorite to talk about is, you know, white Jesus, you know, blonde haired blue-eyed Jesus, right? I think that's one of the ones that uh, people have kind of keyed in on, yet... Uh, if I asked our listeners to close their eyes and picture the apostles and then ask them to describe their race, most of our listeners would come back and say that they were Caucasian. I think very few would naturally close their eyes and imagine them to be Middle Eastern, um, which means that we have this ingrained sense of race. Um, so I just want to say, I don't want to get caught up in constantly saying, we've probably said this before, um, so just know that there's going to be repeats of things that you've heard before. We're just trying to collect it into one space. Yeah, and so. we're probably going to speaking in broad strokes on, on some of this stuff. So if you've been with us for a while, just know that we're not talking about you. Yeah, so, so this, one of the things that I think is interesting is when we just talk about Jesus and Jesus's whiteness or lack thereof, I think one of the things that happens is that if we identify or we imagine Jesus as whiteness in some way, then Rome no longer becomes the enemy. Rome is almost Jesus's heritage. And the Jews become Jesus's enemy in the story when we read it. If we imagine Jesus to be Jewish, then the oppressor or Rome is the enemy and Jesus's critiques of Judaism are just that, they're critiques from an insider critique. Just as you and I critique Christianity all the time in this, on this podcast, right? Like we're insiders critiquing Christianity, which I don't know about you, but that always feels different than when I listen to like Sam Harris or someone who uh, bashes Christianity as an outsider. And I want to defend even when some of the things that are said are correct, I still have a defense mechanism for it. But you and I are insiders in Christianity critiquing it. And so if Jesus is Jewish, he's an insider critiquing Judaism, fighting against the oppressor of Rome. Yeah. If Jesus 
is white. He's a Roman. I realize we don't, we would never probably say that. We wouldn't say he's Roman, but we identify with the Romans as white uh, individuals. And Judaism becomes the enemy. And we stop talking about Rome. We like, I mean, most churches I grew up in don't talk about Rome nearly as much as they talk about the Jews. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think that that's one of the issues with how people read Paul. I mean, that becomes a natural, I, I, I view that to be a natural way to converse about it. Agreed. And so this is, this is one of the complications. And so when we make Judaism the enemy, then very quickly anti-Semitism creeps in at worst, anti-Judaism at best creeps in. And we start speaking about Judaism as an affront to God or as an affront to Jesus. Um, and we start viewing the Jewish leaders as the oppressors of Christianity as opposed to Rome. And this becomes a major problem in the way then that we interpret and translate scripture to the point that it changes the interpretation completely from the passages. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. And I think that, you know, one of those issues could be caused because we don't understand that you can critique what's going on in Second Temple Judaism and, and pointing out what Jesus is saying without being anti-Jewish. Like there's not a good, at least I should say, having been brought up as a baby pastor and doing stuff in the church, that was not something I was taught. Right. And so when you don't know how to have those conversations and it's embarrassing to ask yes, to avoid them. And so because of that, yeah, the narrative completely shifts. And, and that comes out in a couple key ways that I think are obvious if you're a regular listener to our show. Um, and one of those is that we use Pharisee as a bad word, right? Like we use Pharisee in a derogatory sense. Um, so from the pulpit, it would not be unusual for most of our listeners, even in more progressive churches, to hear from the pulpit Pharisee, the, the word Pharisee or the descriptor of Pharisee used as a derogatory statement. Now, if you've studied culture and history of Second Temple Judaism, you would recognize pretty quickly that Jesus fits into the Pharisaic movement better and more completely than any of the other movements that were happening at the time. In fact, Jesus uh, agrees with most of the Pharisaic teachings. Um, now, his interpretation over certain passages, there's disruption. And a lot of the interactions we see with Jesus and the Pharisees were very common Jewish teacher uh, and student discussions and debates that are important. Now, they become conflicting in our churches because most pastors don't ever want to be questioned. They're afraid of being questioned because they, the pulpit holds the power. And so we put the same, we place that same burden then on Jesus that Jesus never wants to be questioned. Don't ever question Jesus is how we read the text. And so anyone that questions Jesus is immediately an enemy instead of a good listener. Yeah, I mean, no, it's okay. I was just going to say, and I think part of that is, it comes from our uncomfortable sense of not being okay with not having an answer for something also because that's something else that you're not taught and when you say that i don't know or you treat i don't know as a bad 
phrase or a naughty phrase in the church, that's when you are setting people up for failure and you're not doing the work of Jesus. It's why most pastors will never do a Q&A following their sermon or in the middle of their sermon. Like, imagine what that would look like in most churches if you're allowed to question the scholarship or the reasonableness of the interpretation of your pastor on a regular basis. Like, that, that would change so much. Yeah, it would. And so Jesus is okay with people questioning him. And we need to get that through our minds when we're reading the text. In fact, in a lot of cases, they actually honor Jesus when they stand up and ask him a question because to be questioned was to say that you recognize the authority in some way of the person you're speaking to. Now today, when we question somebody, it's because we're diminishing their authority, right? Um, I used to, I grew up in a church that said, um, you know, faith is about not questioning God. And I was like, well, what if you have enough faith in God that you believe God has a good answer? Um, and, but it's a really interesting mindset, right? That today, if someone, if I were to say, George, someone questioned me, would you immediately think a positive or a negative about that? Well, I guess it would depend on who was doing the questioning because I would, might feel bad for them. <laughs> well, fair enough. But, but I mean, in our setting, like at Dust or in the discipleship, obviously we've cultivated a sense of we, you need to ask questions. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, but if, if just in general, I was like, yeah, I got questioned the other day. Would you imagine that that was a positive setting or a negative setting? I would hope that it was positive. Um, honestly, I would just be more amused to hear what happened. I'm probably not giving you the answer that you want, but it is what it is. Okay, so let me change it. If, if, you're, if Jack came home and said she got questioned today at work, would you assume it was positive or negative? Positive. Really? See, I, my sense is that whenever you use the term that someone gets questioned, it's negative. Well, I mean, I guess I'm thinking... They, they, I, I might be overthinking this because she's a medical practitioner. So, you know, parents ask questions. So, uh, anyway, let's, yeah, let's go on. Let's say it was a bad thing. Okay. Well, I, I don't want you to conform your answer to my expectations. I, but it's in my setting, in culture today, I think that if any random person just came up to me that I know, so not completely random, one of my friends randomly came up to me and said, I just spent the whole day being questioned. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then I would, yeah, I could I assume that that was a positive experience. Yeah. Ancient Israel, it would have been a positive experience as a Jewish teacher of Torah to have people asking you questions because people were curious and they wanted to hear someone with, with authority respond to how to interpret the text, how to engage God. Now today, I would say that if someone questions me about the text, it rarely, except for in our circle of dust and discipleship, it rarely is more than someone trying to trap me or to try and 
you know, uh, get an answer that they want. They don't actually want my thoughts and my ideas. They want in some way to track me. And we see that with Jesus, right? But if we read that as every time Jesus is questioned, as opposed to just the times it mentions, and they try to trap him. So you reacted to that. What, what were you? I was just thinking about a conversation I had yesterday with um, a friend of mine uh, who's Muslim about the, the different types of questions he gets from people. And it was just, it, just the timeliness of, of this came to mind. That's all. Continue. So one of the other things then that we do with like using Pharisee as kind of a slanderous term is one of the things we miss is that modern Judaism ties itself directly to Phariseeism. Um, the Pharisees of Jesus' day have become the modern Jewish movement. Um, and maybe there are some portions of the modern Jewish movement that trace themselves to a different group, but I would say that the dominant group that it's traced to is Phariseeism. All rabbinic Judaism is Phariseeism, right? Um, or can draw its roots to that. So when we use the word Pharisee as a derogatory statement, we are unwittingly, I hope, saying something derogatory about our Jewish brothers and sisters today. Because the Pharisaic movement is what led to rabbinic Judaism. And if we say Pharisees are evil, Pharisees are bad, Pharisees are wicked, then we are saying that the very foundation on which their current understanding of studying and expressing God and Torah is based out of wickedness and deceit, it's a, it's a terrible thing. And we need to be very cautious of it. So um, you also mentioned in there uh, missions. Yeah. Tell me more about how white supremacy plays a role in, in missions. Uh, well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, colonization of indigenous peoples and forcing them to conform to Christianity. Absolutely. And, you know, even modern um, missions, you know, go into different countries and try and recreate what's going on in the West as far as Christianity goes. Uh, and in doing that, you commit um, oh, cultural genocide. That's the word. Yeah. And I mean, just look, if you watch any shows, if you watch any shows on different uh, tribes or different communities in Africa, and you see like a, a community or a group of Africans who dress in what looks like 1950s Mennonite clothing with maybe a more floral pattern or something that's more African in the pattern uh, or in the design, uh, the actual, uh, I don't know, like polka dots instead, instead of polka dots, it's more African yeah. imagery, but they're still wearing like a dress that would remind you of Mennonites. Well, it's because they were forced in that, uh, in that missionary time to change the way they dressed, or maybe even to put clothes on. Yeah. Um, and and you know, it's stuck. Yeah, and so 
that's, that's one other, that's one obvious example. The other one that comes to mind is, and this is something that is super close to, to me because of the work that I currently do, uh, how churches I've been a part of would send people to the inner city or create ministries that are to help those without even asking the questions of what's going on or sitting at the feet and continuing to push white suburban ideals into making making the city great again for Jesus. I judge for Christian idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and we do that a lot and we um, and we assume we know what's best. Like and when I say we, I mean white uh, church assumes that we know best what uh, other communities need. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to make other cultures and other communities um, be more uh, comfortable for whiteness. And that's a terrible concept, right? Like that we want, the only reason we're trying to change the way that people live is to make it more comfortable for us. And we have this idea that we have a superior or maybe one might even say supreme way of thinking of and engaging the world. And so if people would learn to just speak more properly, if people would just learn to um, behave more white, if people would be like, we have this mindset and it's perpetuated in the church. And I would say the church does a huge amount of perpetrating this because, or perpetuating of it, because the church insists that its theology is the theology for the world. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you don't label anything evangelical theology or white theology. It's theology. Oh, man, I have put on social media different times about white theology, and yeah. you would that what's funny with that is sometimes I even get people who are more progressive who are like, what is this white theology you're talking about? And that sounds racist. And I'm like, it is. And it's what you're taught every Sunday because most of our pastors are not influenced by anyone else other than white thinkers. Well, yeah. I mean, and so, you know, this goes back to what you asked me at the beginning and when we're, when we're setting ourselves up to continue to propagate the status quo because it works for us and our, our natural thinking through osmosis is it will work for everyone if they try hard enough, not realizing that those, even saying that, thinking that are racist ideals. And that's when we continue to become the, the holders of white Christian supremacy. Yes. And it's, and that's what, that's what kills me. You know, I, I like using harsh language like that to get the point across because it's easier, but I, and I don't know, this is just me rambling right now, but I wish there was a way to discuss it to where the language wasn't so off-putting for people who are participating in it so they can actually listen to what's going on. What language are you speaking about specifically? Like if I were to tell my parents or somebody I used to go to church with that you're propagating white supremacy. Um, some of the conversations I've had with people that that just shuts them down from listening right away. Yeah. That's what I, that's all I meant by that. 
Yeah, and this is where it gets complicated, right? Like, I think that as white people, we should find the strongest ways that we can to address this in manners that does not cause people to shut down immediately. But I don't think we can back down from the strongness of the situation. However, um, I would never expect, and I don't think you do either, George, I would never expect any of my friends, my non-white friends, to soften it so it doesn't hurt white people's feelings. Absolutely. Ability um, is, a, is a real thing um, in the church, outside the church, etc. And so I would never expect my, my non-white friends to couch it. But I think that there is, there is at times room for us to do it uh, in order to maybe prolong the conversation enough that maybe we break through some of the defensiveness. So this is not an episode for that, though. So if you're offended by white supremacy, turn it now. If you made it this far, if you got this far. So there's a couple other things, and this isn't just in the white church. This is how white theology has impacted other cultures as well. And we've—I know for a fact—we've mentioned this: the idea of the good Samaritan, right? Like, it would be terrible to say the good Mexican might, you know, when referring to someone, or the good black person when referring to someone. Yet, that's exactly what that phrase, the good Samaritan, implies. That Samaritans are, we, we should be surprised when we meet a good Samaritan. And so we have to acknowledge that this is one of the good ones. That in and of itself is racist. Now, I want to be very careful here because that is not in the Bible. Your Bible might have the Good Samaritan written in it, but in the original text, there is no moment that the Samaritan is referred to as the Good Samaritan. It is later added, surprise, surprise, by a white translator who is trying to explain the situation. And this in and of itself, we should drop that from our language. We should never name another nonprofit after that. We should never uh, name another ministry after that, another hospital, anything. Because, first of all, Samaritans are still a people group today. There are Samaritans in this world today. How horrible that we regularly use the phrase, the Good Samaritan. Um, and it's just really, it plays into some of the racist tropes that would be more recognizable uh, if we used modern races that we are more familiar with in the United States. Now, I said modern, but I guess the Samaritans are modern as well because they exist, right? But if we were to say, you know, the good Mexican, the good Venezuelan, the good whatever, the good, you get the picture. I, I don't want to say it anymore. So this is, this is another place where some of the simple teachings in, that we do that we don't even think about continues to propel this idea of supremacy and racism in the church. Now, you could argue, well, Jesus was Jewish, and so it, it isn't about white supremacy, but we make Jesus white in the way that we teach Jesus, right? Like, 
I often get accused, George, and I'm sure you are familiar with this accusation that happens to me. People will be like, well, do you believe in Jesus? Right? Like that's the first, like so many people want to ask me, do you even believe in Jesus? And do you know, how, do you remember how I usually infuriate people with that question? Which Jesus? Are you talking about yeah. white Jesus? Are you talking about MAGA Jesus? Are you talking about progressive liberal Jesus? Are you talking about Middle Eastern Jesus? Are you talking about the Jewish Jesus? Right. So my question back to them is always, which, well, it depends. Which Jesus are you talking about? And that, that annoys people, right? But the truth is, is that we have constructed Jesus in our own image. And Jesus in our image is white middle class uh, in the church. And so Jesus has white middle class sensibilities. Yeah, because he's not upper middle class, because he's humble. You know, he's middle class Jesus. Well, we need, he needs to be relatable. Yeah. And, and he pulled himself up by his bootstraps because he was born poor. Personally, I say sandal straps because I understand context, Don. He's a self-made savior. Yeah. Um, and so like this is, but this is really important for the way that we think about faith. Because let's imagine if Jesus is indeed, if the Jesus we've learned about uh, and the theology that's been taught to us comes from the perspective of white middle class interpretation of Jesus. What is one of the key components of the Bible that we cannot identify with? Any guesses, George? Did you re-ask that? If we identify Jesus and we teach Jesus from the perspective of white middle class Jesus, what is one of the key aspects of the entire Bible that is unrelatable? Um, the fact that he is an oppressed person and not yeah. the producer. Great. I was like, George has no shot at this. Good one, George. Uh, these are so broad of a question. I was like, I was like, George is going to like over, like think into this too much. But yeah. We can't relate to oppression. And so the only thing that, that when Jesus is speaking about oppressive situations and oppressive settings, we have to convert that to what? I, now I'm going to overthink it, so go ahead. Spiritual. It's oh, just, yeah, duh. There's, there's no physical oppression. And so when Jesus is talking about oppressive things, then clearly Jesus is talking about spiritual things. Yeah. So we remove the physicality of scripture and we teach the Bible as spiritual oppression. And do I think that there is some spiritual oppression in the Bible? Of course, but I think there's a lot more oppression in the Bible than spiritual oppression. And what do you think, George, is the danger of reducing all of the physical oppression in the Bible to just being spiritual oppression. What is the danger then? Well, then you ignore the physical oppression going on around you. It's not about that. It's a, it's, it's when we turn, you know, Christianity uh, into um, salvation there instead of soterios now. Yes, absolutely. And so that gives us permission to ignore the actual physical oppression that goes around in our community. Because we'll tell people, well, when you get to heaven, it'll be better. Right? That's not what God wants from us. God doesn't want me to tell someone who's being oppressed, well, 
someday when you get to heaven, you'll forget about all of this. No, God wants me to be an enemy of oppression. Like the very nature of who I am as a human being should be physically uh, present to fight against oppressive regimes, oppressive systems, oppressive individuals, oppressive whatever cultures, right? And because we make Jesus white, because we make Jesus middle class, because we make Jesus match our sensibilities, because we've, we've created this caricature of Jesus to match white suburban Christianity, Western white suburban Christianity, then obviously when Jesus is talking about the oppressive forces in this world, he couldn't possibly be talking about Rome. I mean, Rome is a great example of capitalism and how money and stuff can provide. And think about all the cultures that now it's provided for that were just living in dirt shacks before Rome showed up and taught them how to make roads. And, and we can buy into this mindset and we, we then dismiss the atrocities that were committed at the hands of Rome. I think a big example of this is if you ask most Christians now, it's tough to ask this question without triggering that the person knows it's a setup, right? But if you are able to find a way to ask this question, I think most Christians imagine they look at the landscape of Rome, that there are only three crosses, and they're up on the hill of Golgotha, and it was Jesus and two, a murderer and a thief. And that's it. Instead of imagining if you walk down your street and every time you see a telephone pole or a light post, you replace that with a cross. That's more likely what it was like. That you constantly were confronted with rotting, murdered bodies to remind you that you are not burning to remind you that you are not in power. And that's so important, and that changes the way we read the gospel. That's the, that changes the way that the good news even lands for people. Um, and so good news becomes about salvation, or as you mentioned, soterios, and I recommend go back and listen to our episode on salvation and soterios. I think it is one of the most important teachings that I've ever been a part of and participated in. And I think it's, it's, so, it's so necessary for the well-being of the church. But soterios means safety. Soterios means to safely create something. And so when Jesus talks about salvation, he's talking about creating a space that is safe for all people. George, in our salvation-drenched Western white middle-class Christianity, how many churches do you think are safe for all people? Less than they think they are. <laughs> Definitely. I thought you were going to give me like a real number, like four. 73 and a half. But that's just because it's the parking lot. Right. But think about that. If, if indeed our churches were practicing this soterios, then our goal would be not getting people to say a prayer at the altar, 
but instead getting people to commit to a space that cultivates, demonstrates, creates, and expands safety to as many people as possible. Boy, that would be, that's a different Christianity than I've experienced growing up. Well, yeah, I mean, it's even a different Christianity when, and you know, we touched on this, but the, the idea that Christianity is more about um, escapism to go to heaven. And Absolutely. you completely ignore the fact that, you know, if, if, that's, if that's the logical route that you make with, with Christianity in the text, then wherever you go after you die is still just a waiting spot until the reconciliation and rebirth and remake of all things. Like, it's, it's still short-sighted. Yes. And when we do we make Jesus Leonardo DiCaprio, right, on the Titanic. Yeah. And his role is to die and make sure that one of us ends up on the door. That, by the way, he could have been. Let's just be yeah, honest. He could. Yeah. But, yeah, anyway. Yeah, so it completely changes the message. It completely changes. And because of that, the church has been allowed to ignore black lives the church has been allowed to ignore lgbtq inclusion the church has been allowed to ignore immigration the church has been allowed to ignore modern day sex trafficking and slavery um we can you know tip a hat to those things and you know write a check once a year during our missions sunday service but we imagine that that's all that's expected of us, as opposed to we are bringers of good news. And when we bring good news in a setting that is not just spiritual, but is also physical, then it requires something much greater than us. And that is so important. So we only have a couple minutes left. And I, I want to point out one of the ways that the Bible is demonstrably different than the way we teach it. If you think through the vast majority of scripture, and, uh, and primarily when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about the Hebrew text, because I think a, a good argument could be made, um, though I realize in our uh, white uh, supremacist church, this is a hard one to swallow, that the New Testament is primarily a commentary on the Hebrew Bible the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, are Jesus showing how to live out Torah effectively and how to call people to follow out Torah effectively and meaningfully. And then Paul is, how do we take that effective meaning and living out of Torah and take it to Gentiles who have never even heard of Torah? And how do we help them come into that space effectively? And then Revelation is the story of how God will overthrow the oppressor and that those who have committed their lives to finding equity, equality, and mercy, and justice for all people will instead find themselves in power or sitting next to the throne as opposed to Caesar. Okay, so quick overview of the Bible. That probably could have been a series on itself. Anyhow, we'll make it into a t-shirt. There we go. Um, they'll be like, never mind. I was going to concert t-shirt with different you know, cities. But anyhow, 
the one thing that we miss that is one of the key components of almost every major story in the Hebrew Bible is the barren woman of an oppressed people becomes the bearer of the Savior, becomes the bearer of a miracle, becomes the entity by which God's rule and reign and power is demonstrated. Now, we can tell that the Bible has been taught primarily by men because most of us have not ever really engaged the Bible from the perspective of a barren woman is at the center of so many of these stories. And because we, we want the, the person of power, we want the person of um, authority to be a male. And yet we see time and time again that it is through the barren woman that God does the miracle. And I would argue that when we begin the Bible and, the, and God refers to it was formless and void, that that is a womb type language of a barren mother. And God is looking and God is saying, my womb is barren. And we have the spirit hovering over in the same way that we see the spirit hover over Mary in the gospels and all of a sudden, a creation, a new creation is born out of it. And so we begin the Bible with barren woman story and imagery. But boy, do we not want to teach that from a, from a patriarchal uh, pulpit. And so, and I would argue that just adds to the racism, the misogyny, and everything else that comes out of the church. And it's so heartbreaking to me. Any thoughts or questions before we wrap up, George? Um, no, not really. Uh, you, you, I mean, you were talking about that imagery, and I was thinking about when we were doing the Torah uh, portions. So go back if if you want more on that. I think we talked about that in the Genesis, the, like the first portion section. Um, but no, I mean, it's it's. It's good stuff and a lot to think on and hopefully a lot to um, enact on. Yeah, and, and I want to be clear to our listeners. This, it was kind of rough to try and fit all of that into one episode and we really glossed over a lot of stuff. Um, and I would have been much more happy in a setting in which we had an audience that could ask questions or question some of my conclusions and ideas so I could I could clarify some of my thoughts or I could even learn some things uh, from the listeners. So yeah, I, I plead from you to, to post on Facebook, to send us a tweet, you know, whatever, and ask some questions. Does this stir something in you? Does this make you, do you disagree? Um, what, what are you hearing when you hear this? Is this affirming of some of your ideas that you've thought about the church, or is this disconcerting because you hadn't considered just how steeped in whiteness your church is? Yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I think this kind of goes without saying, but it'd be ideal if it wasn't just two white guys talking about this because it's more, more noise into the thing, but you know, this is a conversation that needs to happen. And our listeners, you know, like you said, at the beginning of this, we critique a lot of, uh, 
Christianity because we're part of it. And this is a natural part of the conversation, not just because of everything that's going on right now and it has been going on over the years, but you know, Jesus is bigger than the small frame that we've, that we've put him in. In some ways, George, I think it's more important for two white guys to be having this conversation because it's important in the sense that the church has allowed us to get away with not having to deal with our own demons. Oh, absolutely. And we would rather bring an outside speaker in that we can then disagree with or push back on, as opposed to one of our own saying, this is inappropriate and we can't be doing this anymore. Yeah. And we need more white people to speak up and speak out about white supremacy that exists in our church. Yeah, you're right. Um, so we're at time. Hopefully, Don, we'll see you again soon back on the podcast, but enjoy your sabbatical. And um, yeah, like Don said, check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Evander Bros. And hopefully, you know, if this resonated a little bit, like Don said, or even, you, you know, disagree, or you think we're off base, email us. And evanderbros at gmail.com. And I realized that, you know, because Don and I like to um argue for the lack of a better word it doesn't mean that if you disagree we're gonna shit all over you because it's just not you know how it's not how i work and especially if this is something that's completely close to your heart and i know don doesn't work that way either um these conversations are important and they need to be had especially with those that that don't see it the same way our interactions are based on familiarity and I think it's different when we have something that we're not familiar with. There's a sense of giving the benefit of the doubt that exists. Absolutely. I just don't benefit the doubt, George. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, I've been your co-host, George. I've been your other co-host, Don. Have a great week, everyone. See ya.